Welcome to the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Joe and Ron are self-proclaimed teacher nerds geeking out on all things education. They are looking to move educational practices out of the 1900s factory worker model to a student-driven classroom full of empathetic, creative, and collaborative students willing to take risks. Join them as they chat with educators from around the world, discussing educational tools, techniques, ideas, policies, and much more. Thank you for listening and becoming one of the teacher nerds. And now a word from a sponsor. Oh, have you heard about the nerds? What's the word? Teacher nerds. You can tweet them out on Twitter. You can find them on the gram. After listening to their podcast, you'd be sitting there like, bam, trying to take the teaching from one level to the next, reaching up to Canada and down to Mexico. Gotta go, teaching nerds, start the show. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Teacher Nerds Podcast. I'm Ron Nober. I'm Joe DiPaolo. I'm a technology teacher for third grade to eighth grade. And I teach third grade. And today our guest is Angela Stockman who has the book Make Writing and many more. Um, but Make Writing is one that Joe and I have picked up. And so welcome, Angela. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So uh, one of the, I, I got to start off with like one of the quotes from, from the beginning of your book in the introduction, you say, maybe the problem isn't the writer. Maybe it's the way we're defining and teaching writing. And I just, I, I love that. Because as a technology teacher, I love showing the students there's a lot more ways to do your writing than pencil and paper or typing on a keyboard. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, I mean, I just, I, I love that. And I, I also put, I think the same is true of reading. True. You know, we have that same, same kind of thing, just defining it differently. Right, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. It's going to be a fun podcast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're going to jump into our Icebreaker are two yes mores, one no way. And today we're going to be doing summertime fruit. So we're recording this on June 3rd. So we'll be right in the midst of summer when this episode comes out. It's time for two yes more, one no way. Joe, you ready to start us off? Oh yeah, I'm a I'm a huge fruit fan. And I think it it comes from my father growing up like it was avid about fruit and always had something in the house. So for me, my, my top fruit, my favorite are uh, peaches. I love Jersey peaches and, and I specifically like them, I think before they're ripe. So I like them nice and hard. So when you bite into them, like they're not juicy. Um, I like a nice hard white peach. Uh, so that would be my number one. Uh, my number two, and I'm hoping by the time this airs, there's, there's, I had it the other day and it was good, but it wasn't the greatest. It's still a little early watermelon. And if it's, if I have the choice, I'm going seeded. Cause I think seeded's a little bit more, I'm, I think seeded's a little more flavorful. Um, Interesting. Than, I, never it, thought of that. I, I do feel, you know, and the seeds stink, but I think the flavor is worth it. Um, so those are my two yeses. Now my one no, and you know, I, I know you said, I, I don't know if there was one I could, I could not like, I like them all, but if I would, I would pass on blueberries and my re my re 
Hold on. My <laughs> reason being, I feel like they're so abundant. You see blueberries nonstop. So by the time summer actually rolls around, you know, I know it's not a summertime fruit, but I do, I eat blueberries quite a bit. Um, so blueberries would be my no way. Not that I don't like it, but out of everything, it's my least favorite. Wow. All right. All right, Angela, let's, let's hear your summertime fruits. I concur with watermelon. Okay. I share that, that interest definitely. And berries. I cannot stand mango. It's like soap. Uh, <laughs> soap. It, it, I a hundred percent agree. There, there oh, is a soapy flavor. There is, and, and it's not for every piece of mango. I, I don't know if it's like closer you get to the rind. I just, and I don't like the texture of it. Yeah. No. Oh. Yeah, mm. I, I, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, right. I, I definitely agree with that. I didn't think about that, but yeah. I tell you what. I, I don't like what do you call it? Processing it. I don't like cutting it up. I don't think yeah. it's easy to eat. And maybe I haven't eaten enough. I'm going to have to try it this weekend and see if I, see if I taste any soap. Yeah, I was <laughs> going to say, just go grab a bar. And now die. you won't be able to untaste it. Oh, now yeah, that I've planted I, this thought in your head. Yeah, right. You ruined it for me. <laughs> yeah. Joe, I got to go and disagree with you on your blueberries. So we are like, I live I, in, in the town where we teach and there are just blueberry farms everywhere here so like i can walk ar around the corner and you know in mid-june you can buy right from the farmer who's taking them off of the the blueberry bushes well sure and if you've ever been to maine like yeah exactly yeah, yeah. And, and jerseys the jersey blueberries are a little bit bigger and plumper like the maine are kind of smaller mm -hmm. um almost like a wild blueberry but yeah so blueberry is one of my absolute favorites and then cherries yeah. I good. I'll sit down with a whole bag of cherries sometimes and go through that. Um, so they would be my two yeses. My my no way, and I'm sorry to both of you is watermelon. Oh, really? Yeah, I just don't. I don't feel like it has flavor. Like, oh man, you know. Wrong. And my wife loves it, and she she puts You're a little bit of salt watermelon. On it. Um, that's what I was just going to say. Watermelon. Yeah, I, I guess I got to go seeded from now on. Maybe give that a try. Wait, mm -hmm. what does what does Susan put on it? She puts a little bit of salt. Yes, watermelon, yeah. and brings, well, I guess brings out the there's flavor. There's a great salad you can make with feta cheese. It's amazing. That, well, on the news the other night, you know the new trend that that what's going on TikTok is uh, they're putting mustard on it now. I, I know I, and I love mustard. I'll put mustard on anything. When I saw that, I was like, it's, it's That's not, pulling, shift. yeah, it's not pulling me in, but, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. but I'll tell you what I am. I'm waiting on some better watermelon. I'm going to try it. The colors uh, are all off too. Like I'm not, no. Yeah. Oh, you don't. Yeah. That, that yeah, yellow. Yeah, yeah. Not with watermelon. <laughs> well, I'll let you know. I'm, uh, yeah. I'm going to try it okay. next weekend. Now the the mustard. Do you use like a French's or a spicy Dijon? Well, they were they were using <laughs> yellow. It's it's funny you say that because as a as a mustard aficionado, I uh, it's they were using yellow mustard. Okay. Yeah, not the not the spicy brown. All right, no <clears throat> Goldens, huh? No, no, no. Sorry, Goldens. <laughs> French's all the way. All right. And now we're going to take a little break, but we'll be back in a moment. Are you looking to encourage your students to think about important political, cultural, economic, geographic, and gender issues? Bring Girl Rising into your classroom. 
Girl Rising is a powerful film that travels the globe following nine unforgettable girls who face daunting barriers to their education, but stand up to them with fortitude and determination. Curriculum from Girl Rising includes teacher guides, project-based lessons, and issue fact sheets. There's even a Flipgrid library with over 30 topics for teachers and students. It doesn't matter whether you teach elementary school, middle school, high school, or college. Engage and empower your class. Visit girlrising.org to get started today. And now back to the show. So and let's start off with, um, can you just tell us and, and the audience a little bit about like your journey in education to, to sure. where you are now? Uh, I have been teaching since 1993 in some capacity. I started my career at the elementary level, spent a little bit of time there and at the high school level, but the bulk of my time in the classroom, I taught middle school English language arts, and I was really privileged to be able to design and teach a writing workshop uh, beside it. So all of our students took writing workshop in addition to um, their English language arts classes there. I, I was there I was in the classroom for a little over a decade, maybe close to 15 years. I don't know. I haven't counted lately, but um, I was invited to become a regional staff developer um, for Erie One BOCES. Our BOCES here in New York State are intermediaries between the Department of Ed and the local school district. And so in that capacity, I served 26 different school districts as a literacy specialist. And I had the opportunity, this was, you know, in the days before EduTwitter, um, teachers were not super well connected online at that point. Um, and I met a handful of teachers in every school that I worked, walked into that were really passionate about teaching writing and looking for company. Um, and they had kind of the same uh, challenges and stones in their shoes as I did when I was, when I was working with kids in the classroom still around so-called uh, resistant writers. And I say so-called because we're the ones that characterize them that way. And I kind of feel now that that's a, a pretty significant reflection of my arrogance that I would use that word mm. or that classification um, toward writers of any stripe. But again, you know, the challenge was we're doing everything we're supposed to be doing you know, that that we learned how to do as people who love and are passionate about teaching writing and we we are staying up on current practice, we are being really reflective. It's still not engaging some of these kids. And so I worked there for four years, but really wanted to start a true writing community um, that existed outside of the public school system where teachers and writers K-12 could come together and do action research and really own the fact that we don't know it all. And let's kind of dive in and write together and study what great writing is in the real world and what it looks like to become a great writer and to support and nurture great writers. So the teachers who were a part of that were invited to join and make the students that were in that program their teachers. And we did a lot of action research and the expectation was that they would disseminate what they were discovering, they would share it back in, into the field. And that's how Make Writing came about. Um, I conducted action research over a series of years. A lot of it was around, um, I used grounded theory methodology, which is interestingly enough, the same methodology that Brene Brown uses, um, but I'm sure she did it far better than I did. Um, 
But 900 points of data later encoding Ooh. all of that was really interesting. I had a lot of pictures and sticky notes and annotations and artifacts spread out all over my living room floor one summer. It was like 2009, maybe 2010. And my husband was on the porch reading the New York Times. And I'm coding all of the data and putting it on sticky notes. Like, this is what I'm noticing in this image. And this is what I'm noticing here. And I was trying to kind of crack the code around these kids who didn't like to write. And my husband came in and he said, I'm seeing a lot of things in this article that I'm reading that are also on the floor in the living room. All of the coding in your data these people in this article in the Times, they're, they're talking about this thing called a maker fair that happened in San Francisco in 2006. And it, apparently this thing is exploding. I didn't know a whole bunch about the maker movement at that time. Um, but I read that article and I really became intrigued and started doing more research and noticing yeah, like when I'm interviewing kids who profess to hate writing and I ask them, what would you be doing right now if I didn't put a pen or a pencil in your hand and make you sit here and put down words? 100% of the time, these kids named things that sounded like making. So then, you know, my interest became how can we offer a process that feels more like making than the, you know, common writing process as we were all, you know, taught to, to teach it. Um, and things kind of flew from there. And so um, I published Make Writing. I also was an independent consultant at that time. Um, so it wasn't just what was happening in my studio. And that was really fascinating because I would go into school districts to work with some teachers in session. And some of them were really resistant to these ideas. But what some of them didn't know is that I was teaching their students in my writing studio oh. <laughs> on weekends and during the summer. And here's what was really fascinating is they would, they would come to me and they would talk about how they wanted to be able to do these sorts of things in school. And even they wanted to be able to, to share our feedback protocol. Um, we used a peer review protocol in my studio that I adapted for my work with Communities for Learning, Leading Lasting Change, which was my professional learning community at the time. And the kids found it really rewarding Teachers were a little bit resistant to using it, largely because it was time consuming. But when kids took it back into school and said, hey, I want to try this, teachers were super receptive and, and really willing to do whatever it was that kids were, were really saying that they wanted to do. And that was a really humbling and a great learning experience for me as someone who facilitates a lot of professional learning is that oftentimes Teachers don't need staff developers to tell them how they need to do things differently. They just really need kids who are willing to, to tell them what they need and to ask, you know, if they might be able to do something in a different way. And I've never met in my experience someone who's resistant once kids are saying, hey, I want to try this in this particular way. So a lot of my work became around, you know, about advocating and giving kids tools for them to advocate for themselves and to ask the question and to raise their hand and say, can I try this a different way instead of just being obedient yep. um, and, and waiting for permission. And um, so, so you're not just talking about changing a writing class. You're talking about changing a whole way of learning. Yeah. 
you know, like a, a set, right, Ron? Like, and yeah. and that's why I'm surprised it's been this long that we we reached out to ask you to come on, um, because right, it, it's a whole. You just said it. Don't sit there and be obedient. Yeah, but also don't assume that your teacher is expecting that from you. Like, I think we all, you know, suffer from teaching the way that we were taught. Right. And we were taught to teach from the front of the room. Does that mean that I want my students to be obedient or that I'm some control freak? No, it just means that I'm not self-aware and that I haven't seen it done a different way. And so what I'll often, you know, encourage writers to do is to take the risk and to ask the question, can I do this in a different way? Or do you mind if I try this? Or can I push back on that idea a little bit? And most teachers are really receptive to that. They're not ogres who want to like dominate and be authoritative at the front of the room. And I think sometimes um, there's a tendency and it's really maybe popular to characterize teachers that way um, or to, you know, go down this whole defunct road around you know, uh, the factory model of education, which is absolutely not historically accurate in any way, shape, or form. It's not what happened. But I think that if we can help kids understand that they can disrupt the system, and disrupting the system doesn't necessarily mean that you are being a scary anarchist either, right? Or that your teacher is some ogre. Just raise your hand and ask the question. It's not a big deal. And you might actually find that they're really grateful that you're that invested or that you're, you're wanting to engage in that way. Right. Or just that you open their, their mind up to something different. Yeah. Right. For sure. Right. Or that they care. Right. They do. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah, and I think a lot of times when we teach from the <clears throat> front of the room, it's because we care and we were taught that this is the best way to do it. And we just need to, to evolve. That's all. And kids can help us do that. Well, and even I, I think it also comes down to like, you know, you're saying like the kids knowing the teacher cares, but also when when you raise your hand as a student and say, hey, I'm interested in doing this. I just want to try it a different way. They actually care about what you were teaching. Right. Which makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. So that's kind of, I guess, how make writing came came about. Mm-hmm. Right. So if for someone who doesn't know much, can you kind of take us through maybe a basic overview of of how make writing would work? So for me, it was about listening when writers told me that they didn't want to use pencil or paper or keyboards and paying attention to what they love to do. And structure really seems to matter. So if I can help writers understand the pieces of a build. So if a story is a build, what are the pieces of it? Oh, the pieces might be a character, a problem, an attempt to solve the problem, a solution, setting. What are the pieces of an argument? Claim, evidence, counterclaim, refutation. What are the pieces of uh, a teaching text? If you're trying to write something informational, topics and facts and details that support those facts. Okay, so if you know what the pieces are, you can use any material or mode of expression to build it. So use Legos to build me your character in your setting and the problem, like rapidly prototype the whole of this piece using a material or a mode of expression other than print. Very, very rapid. And early on in a unit in the first days, I'll ask writers to frame out the whole thing. Use Legos to build me the pieces of your story or use um, clay or Play-Doh to build me your argument 
any loose parts, natural elements, leaves, flowers, sticks, stones, act it out, speak it, um, an audio record, what you are planning to put down with written words. But can you see how the structure creates a container for them to work inside of? Right. Um, so once they rapidly prototype that and I get a sense that they know and have a coherent plan for each of those pieces, then we can teach into them. So build me your character. Now I'm going to teach a mini lesson around small body movement. Tinker with what you built. Add small body movements that show me how your character feels. Now we're going to talk about um, being able to drop your character into a setting. Build me the setting. And what starts to happen is the materials that they use, they give them ideas that they would not have had otherwise. Mm -hmm. And they also organically inspire metaphorical thinking. So if we're building characters and I put pine cones and feathers and rocks on the table and a kid builds a character out of rock and I ask them why they chose that, he's like a real smooth character. And this, <laughs> this person is really soft and gentle. And this guy's kind of prickly like this pine cone might be. Um, even very, very inexperienced and young writers will start to use those metaphors when they start to transition to print. So after they build something, they'll either use transcription where they speak aloud about what they want to write in each piece and they audio record it. And then they use that audio recording to start putting down print, which is has a lot of research behind it. Um, in terms of its effectiveness for growing vocabulary and improving writing. Or mm. if they're not quite ready to go there, kids will label everything in the build with sticky, they'll label it with sticky notes or scraps of paper. They don't know how to spell a word. They can do that. I can do a mini lesson around precision vocabulary um, and they'll switch words and make them more precise. And then they'll start to drop those labels into sentences and stretch them over time. And so this use of multimodality affords writers ideas, concepts, vocabulary words, metaphors, similes, and symbols that they would not be able to access or conceive of if they started with written words first. And that's because, you know, the power of multimodal composition is that each mode affords us something as a creator that the other modes don't. Um, and, and that's, I think, a big piece of why this helps to, to improve their writing. So this isn't just about creating a multimodal product. It's not just about necessarily creating an infographic or a web page or a stop motion video at the end. This is about using multimodality in service to me as the writer. And that use of multimodality helps me produce better print in the end too. Um, so that's what I think makes my work a little bit different than what most other people tend to focus on when they're talking about multimodality or multimedia. Um, usually that's about creating something for an audience and using multimodality to engage an audience or influence an audience. This is make writing. It was really about how multimodality was hooking these kids who claim to hate writing. And it was about changing how we move through the process and service to ourselves. Uh, I was just thinking like, I mean, when you talked about the building the character out of like natural objects, it didn't click until you said it. And then, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, Oh my God, that's so 
obvious that that would help them in terms of even just describing characters, yeah, like yeah. you know the the feel of the rock, the feel of the the feather, or what. Like it just their like you said, their vocabulary increases the way they describe that that show mm-hmm. don't tell, like all well, that kind of stuff. All of the detail. The more the more thoughtful they are in their choices when they're making something that represents a character or a setting, the richer the vocabulary is that yeah. comes out of it. And it, it affords them that time to think about it, you know, yeah. as, as they're thinking and building, especially, right. I mean, I've seen it, I've done it at, at eight years old. They love Legos. They love Play-Dohs. They they're still in that. I don't Yeah. They're, they're makers, you know, they want to build, right. they want to play, they want to work with their hands. They're also very expert at that age in a way that middle school and high school writers sometimes um, aren't because they've lost that experience of playing and with so the Legos. When I bring, and- yeah, when I bring Play-Doh into a kindergarten classroom, right out of the gate, most of the kids in the room are very comfortable using Play-Doh and they will build intricate things with it. When I take Play-Doh into an eighth grade classroom for the very first time, kids will make spheres and they will make ropes. So they'll make these long ropes or they'll make a ball, right? And that's because it's all they know how to do with it because they haven't messed with it in so long. And when I've done a lot of learning around the Reggio Emilia approach, and I've gone there a few times for study tours, and the pedagogistas in Italy, what was striking to me was they, they said, human beings will forget the language of clay if they don't play with clay. And so we need to make space for writers. If we if we want to use these materials in our writing classrooms, you, you need to make space for them to play around with it for no academic purpose whatsoever. Right. Um, and sometimes teachers will say to me, oh, well, I gave them the Play-Doh and they threw it at each other. Sure they did. And that's what they're <laughs> going to do. And you've got to create a space for them to throw it at each other and mess around with it and remember how it works. Um, because they're not going to be comfortable working with those materials necessarily otherwise. Yeah. And I could see where like somebody would say like, oh, well, that, you know, that's fine for third grade, second grade, first grade, but you know, I teach seventh or eighth grade. Right. I mean, they, they need inspiration and ideas and creativity is just as much as anybody else. I it's, guess. It really is about critical thinking. Right. Um, well, if we understand that character is not something that we just create with words But conceptually, if I take kids outside and tell them to find me the characters in a forest, that is not fluffy, cotton candy, lower level thinking that I'm asking them to do. I'm asking them to do something pretty sophisticated. And when I give them materials and tell them to build me a character um, and to be able to reveal in that build how a character is feeling, that is not unsophisticated work. And so this is the work for hi- that high school students need to do as well. And I, I think of kids and I think of teachers who are not comfortable or willing to go there. They evolve into the adults who are flipping out during a pandemic because they don't know how to take the PDF that they print out on their computer and make it come to life in a virtual space for learners. They're not comfortable. And it's not even about the tools. It's about the willingness to tinker and to experiment with stuff. Like, go mess with Google Sites and figure out how it works. What? I don't know what to 
do with it, right? I need to, I need the step-by-step. I need it. So it's that, it's, it's that maker mentality and that mindset that's also very important and a willingness to think more conceptually um, than narrowly about the elements of writing. Well, and, and even you had said before, and it stinks because everything there, there is like a, and it doesn't stink, but I'm trying to keep up with all these ideas that are flowing around. I'll have something to say, and then you'll keep going. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. What would I want to say? Because now there's something else to say. Um, but, but that, I, as a writer, I, I love it all. And what was I going to say? If I did, I just lost it. Well, here, I, I have some, you interrupt me if, okay. if it back. Shoot. If it comes back. Yeah, it, or when, when it, it comes back. That's it. When <laughs> you're not that old yet, optimistic. <laughs> one of the things I, I there are two things I guess. The one thing I thought was really interesting in the book was your discussion about using post its instead mm-hmm. of like a regular graphic organizer, and and it wasn't until I read that that I was like, you know what, that is so the graphic organizer. Holy smokes, that that's some post it notes. <laughs> Those are our units. That's how I do unit design. And wow. And that's uh, so when when we're talking about synthesis. like assessing writing, right? And you're looking for certain things. What if it's not written out on paper, perfectly punctually punctuated and capitalized? It doesn't mean there's not ideas there. So if well, you're it doesn't mean that they haven't met the standard either. That's, and I that's think what I'm saying. Like I do a lot of work around I actually lead district-wide initiatives around standards-based grading and reporting, and I help districts move in that direction. We have to be really astute when it comes to assessment and like congruence in our assessments, meaning if the standard says that writers will create a character, I can ask them to do it with Play-Doh or Clay, yep. and I might split my documentation block in my grade book And in the top half of that square, I'm going to put three because the writer was able to do this proficiently using Play-Doh. And in the bottom square, I might put a two, two, because when I ask them to transition to print, the complexity, the sophistication, or their proficiency around that standard, it dropped down a little bit. But here's the thing that's so important. If I hadn't asked them to do it with Play-Doh, I would have never known that cognitively yep. and creatively they were very much able to meet the standard and that what's getting in the way is their ability to produce print. So it has so, significant yep. implications when we're talking about intervention. Right. Cause giving them a, a writing grade is very different than, than scoring them on different aspects of writing. Right. So when and, I assess writing, it's usually target by target. Well, that, so I it's, think if my mini le- every day there's a target for my mini lesson and I'm documenting the degree to which I see writers achieving that target, I'm not just putting a grade on the final product. And I and I think going or moving to standards based uh, or report cards in our in our case have has right. really helped at least personally me. Yeah, do this with writing. It, it and, is my overwhelming opinion that in the absence of more standards-based grading and reporting assessment processes, we are only going to continue to do harm inside of our writing classrooms. Yeah. And and it does take a lot where you have to talk with them. You know, you have to, a lot of one-on-one conferencing and, you know, because if you don't get to that print, I guess you, you need, in a teacher's terms, evidence for why you think He's a 
or she is a is a one, two, or a three, or however they're being scored. Sure. Some most of our learning targets though are nested inside of bigger standards. And we usually have multiple opportunities to assess targets. And even if I'm not able to assess every single target that might live within a larger standard, I have far more evidence than I used to have when I was only putting a grade on the final product. Right. And the way that I'm using what I'm discovering to inform my instruction is far more informed um, and, and astute. And I'm, I feel like I'm a better diagnostician and I'm responding better um, as a result. I, I feel like my, my students feel as if they're better writers because you can show them, like like you just said, you can create a character. Yeah. You know, you can describe your setting. Well, and, you and can here's show me. Really, uh, I think an important conversation and a frightening one for many people. There are kids who may never be able to translate that into written words, who are going to make far more money <laughs> than those who are able to put it into written words, doing work that they are truly passionate about. And that actually might change the world. Well, um, we have a student. The world wants multimodality. They don't want your dissertation. Ron and I have a student in common. And 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 I guess it was when I started uh, working with make writing for our informational pieces. You know, it wasn't just how to do something. It was how are you going to show someone? He's like, well, I, you know, he wanted to make YouTube videos on how to change tires on a bicycle, how yep. to cha- how to change, um, you know, the chains. And, and so we, we brought stuff in and, and it was great because in our class, the kid thrived yep. because, you know, what, but if we asked them to just write it out on paper and with paper and pencil, I don't think you'd be able to read it because it would and be I'm so. And I'm never suggesting that the written word is not important no, and that but... we don't have a responsibility to serve writers there. But I definitely think we have a responsibility to create space for them to use other modes of expression right. when that's what the world is yep, going right. to expect of them. Because I will tell you this. I won't read a paper on how to how to take the microwave off the oven or the no, you're going to open up YouTube off. and look for a video. Yep. 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 And from those videos we could tell did they engage the reader with uh, you know x y whatever was in the rubric? Heck yeah, they can do it. Right. You know, so can they can they put information out there? Can they persuade a reader to think something? Can they can they start a persuasive essay with a story? When I had a little girl do that this year, she was because you talk about when they say, can I do that? You know, because we talked about leads and, you know, in your lead, you might ask a question. You might state a surprising fact, but she's like, I thought if I told this story and I'm like, I, and, you know, this is a little <laughs> girl with an IEP. And I, I, I called over to the special ed teacher. I was like, yo, yo, Miss England, you got, you got to look at this. You tell me this isn't a great beginning. And she was like, I wasn't sure. I'm like, heck yeah. You took the risk. You, you used what, you know, she had. She had her sixes and nines. She had dialogue in there. And now it was a little bit dramatic because she wanted to convince the teachers that she wanted a snack at the end of the day. So she was talking about starving and not being able to, you know, concentrate. And I'm like, you know, the, you could, the sass and not that sass in a bad way, but you know, she's a spunky little girl. So it was just full on, like, (laughs) it was awesome. 
you know, so, so that, so that it was take, compelling and she was able to move. SAS can be a very good thing for anyone most, to use in their writing, as long as it is thoughtfully placed and employed. Well, and, and that's it. Like I keep thinking next, you know, every year, do I want to do things differently? Do I want to start with narratives? Do I want to start with informatives? Do I, and then we do persuasives. And then we, the fourth genre we hit is fairy tales. Fairy tales is a freaking blast. Because even now they've all, and we do it at the end. So all year they're they're been working with video editing program, and then I show them the fairy tale I made because I think fairy tales need to be heard, and it's better if you can you know if you can create the whole video. So now it's it's just no our making writing is them trying to figure what they're going to do to put it into the animated cartoon. Yes, and it's it's so like oh well you know, describe this. What's the, today we were working, what's the beach like? Oh, it's a white sand beach. No, no, no. It's black beaches. And it, and it's just really cool. Like at third grade, at the end of the year, it's like, there's no more post-it notes there. They're using different colored pencils to edit their writing. So it's like their, their one stuff is in pencil. Now, when they go back and revise and edit, they're putting it in different colors. And if they're focusing on this sense, it's this color and all in the idea for when we go to we video and produce these cartoons, it's like, Oh, well, well, so I got to look for a sound. This thing's in blue. So let me think of this sound. And that I've, I've never been more excited about a writing project than this year with our fairy tales. And I'm just because so the, the end result of where everything's going to go. And it's probably our third year using the, the Wii video and just teaching them to edit their videos. Cause you said before they, the, the world wants people to, to produce videos and, you yep. know, to freelance. And, and mm -hmm. if, if I can get you to freelance, I don't have to pay you your benefits. You know, I can pay you specific. So and it, that's it, not a good thing either. No, but, <laughs> um, but it changes the whole world that these kids are going to be thrust into. It, it is my overwhelming experience that, those who are comfortable with multimodal composition in any field are the most influential people inside of that field. And I, I think that the ability to be scrappy and entrepreneurial and to be able to use your skills to freelance and have a side gig and generate an income mm -hmm. on top of a job that also values you because you know how to compose that way is a, a really good thing. Well, I, I think our buddy is going to, you know, because he was so hands-on and we let him, I, I'll, every mechanic or every, every tradesman I know has a nine to five job. And then like you just described the yeah. side, the side gig. They're incredibly valuable human beings. And I yeah. think that our definition sometimes in the field of education of what it means to be successful is completely inequitable and informed by biases that are grossly inaccurate and incredibly damaging and a reflection of our really demented cultural and racial history in this country. Um, and so the fact is that schools were created by individualistic people for individualistic people to thrive inside of. And this is what I think of often when I hear people talk about resistant writers, reluctant writers, striving writers. Um, what's another one we hear? Struggling writers. It, it comes right back to that quote that you pulled at the beginning. Are they the one with the problem or are we the ones with right. the problem? Because the fact is that when I leave the world of academia, the stuff that those kids are doing is what the world wants. And 
it's only inside of this little bubble of academia where the written word is privileged above all else. Um, The world does suffer in general from a certain kind of graphocentrism where we think people who produce print perfectly are smarter than those who don't. And that's also grossly inaccurate. But, but the fact is that at the end of the day, you know, it's just a reflection, I think, of our arrogance and privilege when we maintain this mm. notion that that kids who don't want to produce written words the way we do, you know, and are comfortable doing as teachers, that there's something inherently flawed. And um, there isn't. And in fact, those kids who have the opportunity to sharpen those other skills are going to own the world. They already do. Well, I just, I, when you're saying that, I think about, you know, just during the pandemic, right? It, you know, would you want to read a report from the CDC or would you want to look at the infographic? An infographic, that the right? CDC put out. <laughs> and even right? better, like what I'm super jazzed about is there's a woman, and I can't remember her name on LinkedIn that I'm following right now, and she's sharing gifographics. So Ooh. the infographic has GIFs in it, and they're incredibly technical. Like, how the circulatory system works and it's a one pager and the whole thing moves and you're literally watching how the circulatory system works in a way that written words could not accurately and efficiently convey. What did you call it? A gifograph? Gifographic instead of infographic. Oh, I love that. That, Yeah, Yeah, it's very cool. That is pretty, I mean, and I think it also used to be that some of these tools were things that you didn't necessarily have access to in like an elementary school, like video editing, right? Like you wouldn't wouldn't buy Well, but I'm saying in the past, like you wouldn't have bought Adobe, whatever, but now there is like something like WeVideo and you wouldn't have bought Adobe Photoshop to work with third graders on, but there is Canva. And there well, is a and Canva is such a piece of cake. However, oh. I'm still working with lots of teachers who are telling me super hard to use. I'm like, it's oh all God. drag and drop. It's so. And my husband little... will remind me. He's like, but you mess with that stuff all the time, so I, you are too totally nope. comfortable using it. And I know yeah, there's a little it. boy that I wrote about in Make Writing who's now a grown man, um, Luke. He was the first to help me understand the importance of Legos. There's a picture of him and make writing shortly after that picture was taken. He led a professional development session as a kindergartner for, I think about 20 teachers. It was 2010 and we word 2010 had just come out and everyone was losing their mind because they didn't know how to use it. And he led a whole staff development session on the difference between their old version of Word and Word 2010. <laughs> he did staff development on how to do Lego writing. He ran a tech sandbox and playground during <laughs> one of our exhibitions. Like this was a kid who truly teachers were consistently concerned about because he was a struggling writer. And I'm thinking, he just stood up in front of 20 educators <laughs> and gave them legit staff development I just, I can't even anymore. It's just arrogant. What yeah, we well, do. It, and it goes to the same thing as, you know, everybody now, the, you know, learning loss, learning loss, learning loss during the pandemic. And, you know, I think about you have kindergartners and third graders ch- troubleshooting Zoom calls and Google Meets mm-hmm. and actually not for their- standing up 
and saying, hey, I need this. Or I oh, wrote yeah, an you're... anthology this year with 200 kindergarten. I, I ran sessions, back-to-back sessions in December where hundreds of kindergartners were showing up on Zoom. I was making writing with them, giving them a challenge. They would go offline and do their building, take a picture of it, drop it into Google Slides. We had a slide deck that was like, you know, a few hundred slides long. All of that ended up in a digital ebook that we ended up publishing. Um, at the end, they transitioned all of that. There was not a single glitch inside of that. Um, because this was also a pretty privileged district where kids have had lots of experience with connected learning and digital technology. It's not going to be that way everywhere by a long shot. In my own, you know, neighborhood and neck of the world, neck of the woods, it's it's a very different story. But my point is that I think we underestimate and assume and 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 yeah. and not give them the opportunity to at yeah. least try. Well, what kills me about this pandemic learning loss thing is, is we all have learned a whole lot. They didn't just learn the things we wanted them to learn. Right. We had a plan for what they were going to learn. And because we are so important, that plan is super important. <laughs> so they might have learned a whole bunch, but because it wasn't what we wanted them to learn, it doesn't count. It doesn't fit in the box. It doesn't fit it's in that box. It's not just about the, it's like it's the ego and behind it, it's just not. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a change of attitude that needs to come about. Yeah. And, but I think there's hope because I think there is a lot of people who do think along the lines of exactly what you're saying. And I also have a deep appreciation for, I do, the fact that content matters. It really does. There are content understandings that kids didn't get this year and it will affect their ability to comprehend new content. But if the whole globe is inside of this situation, exactly what are we behind on? That's what we said. It's it's not just something arbitrary. It's not kids in our district. It's not kids in Jersey. It's not kids on the East Coast. So everyone's in this. And and next year, things are going to start to open up a little bit. And I am an alignment girl, and I appreciate the fact that certain content learning didn't happen this year and certain skills weren't practiced. But I think that we really need to be attuned to the magnitude of this moment um, and understand if we could. And sometimes I think it's denial. I sometimes think that these people who are panicking, they're still living in denial about what this really is, how significant it is how traumatizing this right. is in a thousand different ways. And so it, it it's easier and it, it's easy to control and define if we just start trying learning loss and acting like everything that we're going to use the same metric and that the same ruler, we're, we're going to still put that in place. Right. I, I think it's, it's almost like a protective thing that we're doing but it's not a very well-informed one or a very honest one. At the end of the day, when I look at schooling, the learning that can happen in, in you know, now, if it doesn't happen now, eventually it's going to happen when that learner is ready for mm-hmm. things to happen and for to accept to, for them to accept right. what's going on. Or when the moment arises where they need to master something that they didn't know before. Yeah. As at 20 years old, I was failing my class at Burlington at the local community college. And over the weekend, I was working at the restaurant to pay for freaking next semester's class. Did it suck? Yep. But did it, was it, did it suck enough to, to do the work for the English class? Nope. I failed English 101 three times. <laughs> and my, and I took the same, and the guy was like, Joe, 
come on, what are you doing? What are you? And, and coming from my senior year where on our writing exam, I got the highest score. Yeah. I just, I just didn't care about anything. And, you know, it was, you have to, everyone else in my, in my family was a blue collar worker. They were all iron workers. You got to go to college. You got to go to college. They don't want to go to college. I, I didn't care at the time, but that's what you had to do. So when I failed out, they're like, well, now you're paying for college on your own. Okay. I'm still not stopping my restaurant job. I'm still not, I'm still not stopping yeah. going out surfing. I'm still not stopping traveling. I'll do what I got to do. I'll fail my classes. And then eventually I started to think, wait a minute, all I got to do is show up and pay attention and talk a little bit and read what they asked me. Okay. I could do this, <laughs> but it didn't happen until I was 23. Right. And I think it's that way for a lot of people until the learning becomes something that they personally value and are invested in. No amount of forcing, intimidation, manipulation, scare tactics, bribery is going to make that happen. You know, my, my daughter, ironically enough, one of the classes that she struggled with most in college was her creative writing class (laughs) and would not ask for help would not ask for help. And also a philosophy class, which my husband is very passionate about, would not ask for help. And I don't know if it was pride or whatever that got in the way. But when it came time to have to retake this class, you know, I kept saying to her, you're not going to be able to get a job if you don't get this degree. And she kept saying, nobody cares about the degree. They care about my portfolio. They care if I can get the work done. She's like, design is a completely different industry than the one you work in. And I'm telling you, what matters is my portfolio and I'm, I'm going to get hired. I'm going to get, and I was, no, 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 no. You, you got to first things first and finish this. Day. And it, it evolved into this place where she was like, so I'm making a killing as a graphic designer right now. Should I just not have my business anymore so I can do this creative writing class thing that you think is so, and it's just been such an education for me as a parent to negotiate all of them. Well, I mean, I think that also goes to like everything we do is as educators is supposed to be for college and career readiness. I think we, we forget, or a lot of educators forget the career readiness. Absolutely. Right. Like, so trades and, and it comes even, we have BCIT, Burlington County Institute of Technology um, is a trade high school, you know, in, in our area. And, they come, it is not the trade high school of when I was a kid. No, nope. right. like it is so much more than that now. Right. And, and I think it just, just that in and of itself has such a bad idea or taste in people's mouth that they don't even allow their children to even explore that as an option. When yeah, we, it's, when just, it's very that. limited thinking and mindset. What, what gives me a lot of hope though, is this generation of kids my daughter's generation specifically, they don't sit down for that. Yeah. And and I think that they're teaching their parents a lot as a result. And it can be really uncomfortable, those lessons, but. Well, you, when you talk about the, the technology school, my son just graduated eighth grade last year. So we were looking at the technology school and on the first night they said, you know, our graduation rate is this. And after graduation, this amount gets into jobs. And it was less than 50% that go right into a career, whether it's welding, whether it's auto mechanics, uh, there's a small portion that goes into military services and the rest go to college and which floored me. 
Because I'm thinking, you know, you go to this school, so you don't have to go to college. So you can jump right out. But that's not, it's not the case. It's not the case. And And I think, you know, life is long and, and we aren't necessarily wanting to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in college at the age of 18. And I think that that's another piece that's very different now than when I went to college or generations before me is, you know, my kids went to schools, they got into state schools and state schools are supposed to be really economical, but their grades got them scholarships and got them grants that made private school less expensive than our state schools here in New York. We're still looking at over a hundred grand if you want to live on campus for those four years. That's a pretty significant commitment to make when you're 18 years old. hundred percent. And then what kind of job are you going to get to start paying those loans back? Absolutely. Well, and in New York state, you know, what we have going on too is um, the students can only take $3,500 in federal loans and yeah. So it's all parent loans that need to be taken unless you take private loans, but there are some pros and cons to doing that. It's an interesting ride wow. right now. That's that's why when I was so upset, my son <laughs> didn't want to go to the trade school route because I'm thinking, you know, I'd rather I'd rather him develop the trade and and possibly I don't want to say avoid college, but not have to not have college be all the eggs in that basket. I got to go to college. I got to get a job. And not that, you know, college is still, you know, the community college right up the road. It's an accredited school. It's paired with another state school. You know, if that's the case, that's the case. But but to have that option of the trade. So if college doesn't work out, I have something to fall back on. Well, and I think that, that, you know, what one of the gifts of technology And the emphasis, I think, on things like design and design thinking and the accessibility that people have to all of this, this thinking and learning and opportunity is that people are becoming far more entrepreneurial than they used to be. Mm -hmm. And so it's not necessarily about I have to make the right decision at 18 and land myself in a job and stay in this fixed state like this is these are. This generation, my kids are are my oldest, at least right now, is a digital nomad. She can work from anywhere right. and also knows how to market herself well and, and really be pretty agile in terms of finding work that she loves to do for people who are decent human beings. And that's really what this is all about. We want kids to be scrappy enough and skilled enough and confident enough to get out of bad situations or walk away from people who are not doing, you know, good stuff or or to not have to live under the thumb of a really bad leader for the rest of their life inside of a system. It's very different than the world that, that I come from, although I feel like I have some of those skills myself and I've been really privileged to be able you know, to, to have my own business and to, to have, we live pretty small. And I think that that's another factor too, but I think kids are, this generation is going to have a lot of opportunity to create things that we can't even conceive of for themselves. Um, As long as we make space for them to figure out who they are and what they love to do and how they love to do it. I I was to say at at 45, I feel like I definitely went through a different schooling than what we're trying to put forth now. And I, and I, I feel like I have those skills that we're trying to teach because I continued to fail right. and didn't let it 
get me, you know, like I was failing classes left, left and right, but didn't think I was a failure, you know, and, and I think given those kids the opportunity not just to fail at tests, because some kids take that to heart, you know, but giving them the opportunities to make and, and things not going. So that's that safe environment to, to fail and learn how to do everything you were just yeah, talking grades about. Grades are a real beast. And yeah. I think that that changes a lot. Well, you know, even... I think they're thinking about doing away with the valedict, or there's a push to do away with the valedictorian and, and pseudodictorian. I think that, you know, the first and second place students, um, because of all the pressure and the stress that it, that it puts on the kids, you know, over four years and you're at, I think high school's tough enough. And now you're it's throwing- incredibly unhealthy. And that level of com- competition is just toxic. There's oh. absolutely nothing in the literature that shows that grades are helpful for learning, that they facilitate learning or that they do good things inside of communities for anybody, that level of competition. There's just like absolutely no reason for and it. And then adding on, Oh, this is a college level course. So we're going to up this and, and you're going to get the opportunity to graduate with this graduate with this many college credits, but you got it. So you're putting all this pressure on the kids who I feel like at, at the end of that four years would just break, you know, and then to, to throw them into another four years or six years or five years with the masters, you know, who knows what they're going to get into, but, but to have all that stress for the last, those, you know, freshman year to senior. And I guess not every high school kid is that oriented and focused. Um, But I think a lot of them are. And a lot of them are, you know, freshmen, you're thinking about, I can do this. Like my son just said, I can't fail algebra. I can't fail algebra now because it'll mess me up and I won't be able to do this my senior year. I'm like, who cares about your schedule senior year? You know, you're, you're a freshman. Let's not fail algebra, period. But let's not, let's not focus on, I don't want to fail this freshman year because it'll screw things up for senior year. That too. Like, I, I just think that's added pressure, like it's not worth it to for and i and i hate for him to hear me say i don't care about the grades cuz at the end of the day I, I can't care about the grades i care more about him and 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 is he able to think for himself is he able to be creative is he able to fail and screw something up and say okay this didn't work let me now try this to find something he's passionate about and then pursue that I think that's what will help him be successful. And I'm talking about him, but just, you know, any, any kid, any student out there in my class and Ron's class, I think that's, that's what should be pushed. The opportunity to fail, the opportunity to make um, all in a safe environment where you can learn those skills. So if you do grow up and you do have a boss that's toxic and you need to get away from, um, not only do you have the the kutzpah to be like, listen, this is what I think, and I'm out of here. And then the skills to to have something else to put you forward. I mean, I guess kind of going off of that with with making, Angela, do you see making, but do you see it being able to be used in almost all subject areas? Yeah. Um, the thing about my work is that it's not my work. Writing has always been multimodal. We've just privileged print inside of schools. And so when we think about what it looks like to express ourselves across content areas. Every single profession has multimodal composers within it. People who communicate the expertise of that profession, who make arguments inside of that profession, who theorize, who teach others about the content that lives inside of, of that world. And they do it in ways that are tremendously 
dynamic and multimodal. It's only in school where we reduce everything to written words. The other piece is this, and I, I think that it gets tangled up sometimes with learning styles, which, you know, is, is debunked long ago. When we say that writing is multimodal, we say we are suggesting that it is visual, that images matter, that gesture matters, that the tone of my voice, orality matters, um, that we're talking about haptics, that when your phone buzzes and it vibrates in your pocket, that's your phone communicating with you. Braille is, is haptic as well. People who are able to communicate information in a way that relies on the very best mode for that information are the most influential people in their field of study. So if we're graduating lots of kids who don't know how to express themselves multimodally across content areas, we're graduating kids who are not going to be able to express themselves completely or share expertise in a whole manner once they enter their field. And they will be bested by other people who are able to do that inside of their field. I just, I, I mean, I, I love that. Cause it's just, it's kind of just what, I mean, Joe and I have been, it, it's nice to get some validation from other people other than Joe and I just talking to each other in the classroom, yeah. you know, <laughs> and, and to hear that from other people who, you know, we kind of look up to as, as kind of experts in a field, in the field. And I know you also just put out, a pretty large free resource for everybody. And I wanted, you know, if you could talk about that and, and I'm always amazed when someone puts out something that big, that useful and it's free. Yeah. Uh, It's the make writing starter set. I think you're referring to Um, that document I created because a lot of people were saying they needed something that could help them get started in a really practical way. Um, and I pinned it to the top of my my Twitter feed. So if people are looking for it, they can just find me on Twitter. It's the very first post that I pinned at the top of the page. But here's the thing about that. If, if Anyone who's known me for a long time inside of, of the world of, of Connected Ed knows that I give all of my stuff away. I always have. Um, The only thing that's changed this year is that I've created landing pages and asked people to give me their email addresses in order to get the document. And that's because I was scattering stuff all over the place, right? I I would design a document and throw it on Twitter and throw it on Facebook. And it's almost like it disappears and the audience that uses it, you're not even sure who they are. You know, like, how is your work resonating? And so a lot of friends, especially when when we went into quarantine and everything started shifting and most of my work was remote, I started sharing more and more and more content because a lot of my content isn't stuff that I'm sharing on a flip chart in a building anymore. It's stuff that I've already that I'm designing slides for that I'm designing, you know, a lot of digital content around and I'm, I'm sharing all of it. And one of my friends said, you know, you could serve your audience better if you know who actually downloaded the make writing starter set, because then when you make like the next set, you can send it right to those people. 
Mm. Um, and you're able to stay in a closer community with them as a result. And, and if like, for the instance, this summer, my campus picked up my writing studio. And so I have two a week this summer live with kids and teachers and I'm now I'm able to reach out to people who downloaded that starter set and say, hey, if you want to come, you can get free staff development and come hang out with me. And, and the fact is that the tighter my community is, um, the more that I learn, because they'll take that make writing starter set, they're going to go use it in their classrooms, and they'll email me and be like, I tried it this way, or I riffed off of it in this way, or I adapted what you did, and I discovered this thing that like you didn't even know about, and I learn more, and I grow as a result of that, and so I tend to share, if you go to my Instagram, and in my profile, I have a link tree I didn't just give away the make rating starter set this month. I also gave away a claim makers kit. Yeah, um, yep. I gave away a layered storyboarding set, like everything that I create if for my work with teachers, I give that away. That's not what I get paid to do. I get paid to teach and I get paid to facilitate staff development. And it's, it's that work that I think is what makes me, I hope most valuable um, so the more that I can share resources that help other people do that work and also do it well. So you write a book called Make Writing and you start sharing pictures of Legos all over the internet and the whole world jumps up and misinterprets exactly what you're doing. And some people think it's about evading writing. It's evading standards. It's evading whatever curriculum. That, that is not what it is. So the more that I can share content that clarifies what I mean by this, the more, the less likely that that work is going to do damage inside of schools. And, and I will say this, anybody who shares a theory in education and especially creates curriculum around it, unless you have brought them to the table to ask them to share their thinking about it, Nine times out of 10, it's being misinterpreted and used in ways that the creator never intended inside mm. of schools. And so that's a piece of why I try to share clarifying content as much as possible, too. I know I threw something out once and you totally retweeted it. And I forget who you tagged, but you're like, check this out. This is the make writing process or it was real. like I felt validated. Like, yeah. yo, look at this. The author was like, you know, because I threw it out there like, hey. <laughs> this is great. Thank you. But the more we have examples of how people interpret the work in really thoughtful and creative and high quality ways, we are nothing without diverse perspectives and adaptation on our ideas. And the more that people share those things and the more examples we have to share, the more we all do better. Right. And that's what it's really about. You know, I thought it was great. And then the kids, people will also tag me into things that are really lousy. And that, that's not a good conversation. <laughs> well, well, I'm glad. Okay, so on. here I am on this very big platform and you have just shared something really <laughs> problematic with me. So how are we going to handle that? <laughs> I've never really thought about that. But yeah, that could. if you're going to do it, you got to do it nicely. I do. You know, there are a lot of people who publish books and who facilitate professional development and keynote and they don't they don't necessarily engage with people who tweet at them. Right. Um, they'll say, "Oh, thank you," and then they'll move on, or they'll like the post or whatever. But for me, you know, I I came of age uh, in the edu Twitter sphere at a time when people were talking about the fact that this wasn't about gathering volumes of followers and marketing and selling people. That this was about creating professional learning community. Yeah. 
And so for me, I try to always be as responsive as I can to really get to know the people who are like using my work. And that also means that when people are not doing good work, I have to be know how to have that conversation and to do it in a way that isn't shaming people or knocking them down on a platform where lots of people are watching that exchange, right? Right. right. Helping someone grow just to yeah. be better. So sometimes I'll just respond with, you know, I'm kind of wondering what your intention was with this, or can you show me like, it used to be people would tweet at me lots of pictures of kids playing with Play-Doh. And that got concerning because I was like, no, this is supposed to result in the production of written words, not right. just all of workshop is now playing with Play-Doh. Like that's really dangerous. And so I would start responding. I'd love to see the writing that emerged from this, the written words that emerged from this, or, you know, what was your thinking here? Or it's a beautiful thing to connect people. Like, and that's another thing. Once I get to get to know people better and what they do and how they translate this work, I can say, for instance, like my friend, Clara Redford shares amazing stuff for kindergarten all the time, things that I could never conceive of. And if I if someone tweets something at me at the primary level that seems underdeveloped or unfinished or even not well thought out, I can say, hey, you should see what Clara's doing mm. with this particular thing, like knowing how to connect people to other people that aren't me, um, but are also sharing really great stuff. That That's a really wonderful thing. I can't thank you enough for the the time that you spent with us and oh sure I'm very uh, grateful to be here I love talking about this stuff so thanks for me and you can see I mean you, you can see the passion in 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 your voice and you know just in in your expression of yourself so I mean it's I it's love this work. thank you thank you and thank you for sharing everything yeah. I mean that's yeah, absolutely I will keep doing so yeah allow allows us in the trenches to have something to work with yeah <laughs> so you you mentioned your Twitter and your Instagram how can people get in touch with you there? I am at Angela Stockman on Twitter. I am Angela Make Writing on Instagram. And I run the Building Better Writers group on Facebook. I also have a website, AngelaStockman.com. And I have a whole bunch of digital courses um, on PaceYourself.blog. Those are all of the places where I hang out. Oh, I've never heard of PaceYourself.blog. Yeah, that's my digital learning space. Oh, cool. Ooh. I'll have to check yeah. that out. Um, actually on pace yourself, you'll love this, Joe, if you scroll all the way to the bottom, when we went into quarantine and made the rush to remote last year, I designed full blown units for writers, well, that teachers could just take and give to their kids. Um, not by any stretch of the imagination, my most polished and perfect work. But if a teacher who wasn't used to teaching online suddenly needed a narrative writing unit for their kindergartners, there's 10 lessons. I taught oh, them wow. all. You can put them on Seesaw. You can put them in your LMS, whatever you want to do with them. So there's a ton of free courses there that you can actually even share with your kids for summer writing. I'm literally teaching all of the courses and they're free. Uh, and you can also use them to riff off of like, how does Angela, it, they're all mini units and they're light. They're not, like I said, that's not my most complex or dazzling work. I did it fast, just like everybody did last spring, yep. but they, they give people an idea of what it looks like to make writing because yep. I'm literally doing it in all of these units. Oh, sweet. Cool. Yeah. That's on paceyourself.blog. Scroll all the way down and you'll find them. Okay. Awesome. So again, uh, we, we, like I said, just thank you so much. Thank you. Teacher nerds, teacher nerds, knocking on your door. 
Open up, let's take your teaching further than before. Give it a try, don't be shy, there's nothing there to lose. Worst thing that happens, kids get pain on their shoes. We're talking teacher nerds, I'm talking teacher We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Keep up with every new episode by subscribing on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Anchor, or anywhere you listen. When you subscribe, be sure to give us a review and tell a friend. Visit us at teachernerds.com. Follow us on Twitter at teachernerds, on Instagram at teachernerdspodcast, or email us teachernerds at gmail.com. And remember, we're nerds with a Z. Most importantly, thank you for listening and becoming one of the teacher nerds. <laughs>